Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am woman, hear me roar. I'm still Kev. Letting this side down. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, welcome to the second part uh, of the first in our series of Great Rivalries Clashes. Kev, just remind people what album we're going through today, what it's been clashed with, all that connections. To, you know, today I will be leading us through Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band uh, by the Beatles. Uh, last week's clash was Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. The reason for the clash, are there are numerous Primarily, the one album begat the other. So Pet Sounds directly influenced the recording of Sgt. Pepper's, as as has been said by McCartney, by George Martin, by loads of other people. They're both two of the first concept albums ever, and uh, they're both massively influenced by Acid. So, you know, there's there's a lot going on here. Very much so. Uh, So before we do go through Sergeant Peppers, we have our regular feature, Video Killed the Radio Star. So it's my choice this week. And the video I want to speak about is, uh, it's a very famous video, actually. It's Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins. The video was directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris. I was reminded of this video, the, the new advert for Hendrix Gin. Is shot. If, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's shot in a very, very similar style. No, I haven't. I haven't seen. I haven't seen the uh, the advert. When you see it, you'll know what I mean. It's very, very similar. The video for tonight tonight was inspired itself by George Melies' silent film, A Trip to the Moon. The idea for the video uh, came from the cover from Melancholy and Infinite Sadness, and that reminded Dayton Farris of the early silent films. It won. Six MTV Video Music Awards. It also won Best Music Video at the Grammys. Uh, so it's shot in that style of silent movies in the earth in the twenties and thirties. And apparently, the production crew had problems locating period costumes because they sort of it was shot in LA on a soundstage. The reason they had problems locating period costumes is because at that same time in LA. James Cameron was shooting Titanic and he basically commandeered all period costumes and period props because he wanted to put them in Titanic. So they had to get people to make the costumes that appear in the video because James Cameron had fucking nicked them all. I mean, and one of the beautiful things about the video is that it does ape the techniques of Melière used at the time. So it's using proper sound stages, it's and proper sets and everything. It's it's so wonderfully shot. It's visually arresting. Like it's not a surprise that it had such heavy rotation on MTV because there was nothing, there was nothing like it ever. And in terms mm. of a tribute, a homage to Melier's film, it's it's stunning. Uh, like I also wanted to point the listeners in the direction of uh, Scorsese's film Hugo, which is directly involves uh, Georges Méliès, and uh, you see the you see a a version of of his original original film in it, and it's it's Hugo's a, a beautiful, brilliant film. It's such a 
a mad video, but beca- became such an I- iconic video and something that really brought them to everyone's attention because it's, I don't think I've ever seen a video as different to anything else that's done at the time as that. Agreed. So I only became aware of Melier and of A Trip to the Moon through uh, through seeing the video to Tonight Tonight. And yeah, everything you've just said, agree entirely. So yeah, Tonight Tonight, if you've not seen it, you should do. If you have seen it, then why not go watch it again? Great video. We'll tweet the link out. Yeah, that's all I want to say. Love that video. And also, Hendrix Gin is quite nice. If you want to send us a bottle of gin, Hendrix, then that'd be loved. Yeah, if you want to send us a free bottle of gin, sound. Um, but I, I also want to thank thank you for your choice because it's a it's a video I know really well, but it's not one that I've gone to watch in in the la- in the last few years. And I'm I'm glad that your pick sort of nudged me in a direction and reminded me of of what a beautiful piece of piece of work it is. Um, well done to everyone involved. The song is great, and the video is equally brilliant. Well, thank you very much. And uh, and yes, I agree. Well done to everyone involved. The Smashing Pumpkins are a particular favourite band of mine. So, um, yeah, great stuff. And on that, I guess we are ready to go through Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So, um, Kev, over to you. So, the road to Sergeant Pepper is a a slightly complicated one. At the end of August 1966, the Beatles decided to retire from touring. And when you know the reason why, I can understand it. The Revolver Tour did not go well. They received death threats in Japan for playing the Nippon Budokan, uh, which I believe is the, uh, the sumo arena. And obviously it was highly controversial for them to play there. They were threatened in the Philippines for not uh, seeing Imelda Marcos and her burgeoning shoe collection at that time. (laughs) And then, just prior to them going over to America, the the infamous remarks by John Lennon saying that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus uh, were published. So when they landed in America, they landed in what can only be described as an almighty shitstorm. So all I'd say in John Lennon's defense is, when was the last time Jesus sold 32 million albums? (laughs) I mean, I don't know what the Gideon Bible uh, sales are. They're giving away for free. There's no fucking sales. I'm in a hotel. Open the door. There's a fucking Gideon's Bible. I don't need to buy the fucking thing, do I? <laughs> so in that case, is that U2 album that they force on everyone, is that like the musical equivalent of a Gideon Bible? Yeah, it is. Do not feed Bono's God complex anymore. It does not need <laughs> <laughs> feeding of that ego. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> move on, please. I have, digre- I have digressed somewhat. So in addition to the fact that there'd been all this shit around the touring, is that they just basically got fucked off because there were so many people screaming. They couldn't hear e- they couldn't hear each other. No one was really listening to them play. It was more that people were wanted to be able to say that they'd seen the Beatles. And they'd just had enough. In, in fact, so much so that George Harrison had said that if they didn't stop touring, he was leaving. So... They agreed collectively to retire from touring and they pursued their own individual interests. George Harrison went to India. and Obviously, that had a bit of an influence on certainly something on this album then subsequently going forward. 
John Lennon was in a film. Oh, was it Oh, What a Lovely War? No, it was How We Won the War. How We Won the War, sorry. And McCartney was doing his own thing, but during a flight back to London in November uh, 66, he had the idea for a song involving an Edwardian military band. And it was this concept that provided the impetus for the sessions. Yeah, so you said McCartney had the idea on a flight back to London. He'd been in, he'd been in Kenya. So here's a quote from McCartney from an interview on his own website for the 50th anniversary of the release of Sergeant Peppers. He said, I was coming back from a trip aboard with our roadie Marl Evans. We were eating and he mumbled to me, asked me to pass the salt and pepper. I misheard him. I go, Sergeant Pepper? Oh, wait a minute. That's a great idea. So I had a laugh about it. And then I started thinking about Sergeant Pepper as a character. I thought it would be a very interesting idea for us to assume alter egos for this album. And like you said, that developed into this idea of an Edwardian military band. Certainly the sessions for Sergeant Peppers um, continued the experimentation that was started on Revolver. So sound effects and tape manipulation, pushing the envelope of what people were doing sonically at this time. But they had no deadline for completion. And as EMI started to lose their shit a bit, they, there was no Beatles release coming any anytime soon. So the the first songs recorded in the sessions were Strawberry Fields, When I'm 64, and Penny Lane. Um, and they were a reflection on their Liverpool childhoods. And under pressure from EMI for a single, Fields and Penny Lane were released as a double A-side. And... It was quite a shock, firstly, that that double A-side didn't reach number one. It's the first time for for a long time that a Beatles release hadn't gone straight in at number one. Uh, the, they were excluded from, from the album because that had been the case on other release singles. And uh, George Martin described it as his biggest professional mistake. And I I certainly agree with that assessment that we will, we will come on to how it works as a concept, I think, if Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane are on there, certainly the first side of the album, it makes more sense as a as a concept. I think the those not being included on the album means that it's a little bit more disparate and the concept maybe doesn't work throughout. So you mentioned Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane not getting to number one. Do you know what did keep it from number one in the UK? Was it Engelbert Humperdinck? It was Engelbert Humperdinck's Please Release Me. Correct. So you said that you thought the inclu- the, the, the not including Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane on the album harms the album thematically. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I know where you're coming from, but the theme of the album isn't reminiscences of childhood. So I don't know. I, 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 um, I don't agree, but that's just me. Fair, fair enough, but we we will we will come on to that. As I said earlier, the they had no deadline, so they could take as long as they want. And Strawberry Fields, considering that it was a single, fifty five hours to record, and that set the agenda for the album, an album a record which would never be able to be performed live. McCartney himself said, "Now our performance is that record." They had no intention of going back out on the road and performing. George Martin, fair fucking play to him. 55 hours of whatever. Go, I mean, Strawberry Fields is an amazing, amazing piece of work. But wow. Well, 
so yes, Strawberry Fields is, is an amazing piece of work, and and the the recording techniques used in that. Well, I said last week, I consider Tomorrow Never Knows to be the greatest piece of music ever put to record, and uh, I'll die on that hill because yous are all fucking wrong if you disagree with me. <laughs> but you said George Martin, Fair Fucks. So this album is pretty much seen as 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 the time when McCartney became the de facto producer for the band. Most of the sessions were late night, overnight sessions, and apparently because of the unsociable hours, George Martin was was often not present for those sessions, and so it was McCartney that was leading them in a production capacity. So that's anecdotally what I've heard. But whoever was in charge, Fairfox, because, wow. What you can also say as well, and has been said by, by others, that this is considered the last sort of unified effort by the entire group. And even when you talk, when you hear Lennon talk about it, when you hear Harrison talk about it, when you hear Ringo talk about it, that it was, it was largely McCartney-led, and you can see the, the seeds of what happens later. Lennon himself said, I just kind of basically turned up with me songs and we recorded them and Paul just did most of the work. Ringo talks about being dead bored during the during the sessions. Mm-hmm. And obviously we know from, from our first clash, particularly when we get to the White Album as well, that George's frustration with this way of recording and not really having his contributions valued, you can see that starting here so the genus of the of the end of the Beatles is start here very very much so so you mentioned Ringo so he said in a 1992 documentary that was made for ITV uh, Ringo Starr said the biggest memory I have of Sergeant Peppers is that I learned to play chess George Harrison was quoted as saying he was bored through the sessions he described them as an assembly process a lot of the time it ended up with Paul just playing the piano and Ringo keeping the tempo, and we weren't allowed to play as a band that very much. Even John Lennon describes his mood at the time as being not in a positive state of mental well-being. So uh, basically his marriage to, to his first wife, Cynthia, was breaking down at this time. He was suffering from depression. And in an interview in 1969 with Barry Miles, he described his mindset as saying, Paul said, come see the show. And I said, I read the news today. Oh, boy. Which is a nice way of putting it. Add a turn of phrase, did the lad. When they did the Royal Variety performance and he said, all the people in the boxes uh, shake your jewellery instead of clapping along. <laughs> I fucking love that. I'm, I'm bang into that. Just one thing I want to I want to call out. So you, you said about there being no deadline for the recordings, and and I talked last week about how Pet Sounds had been at that time the most expensive album ever recorded. Pet Sounds reached seventy thousand dollars as its recording budget. Well, Sergeant Pepper's blew it out of the water. The recording budget apparently ran to seventy five thousand dollars, which nowadays is equivalent to six hundred thousand dollars. It speaks to the creative freedom that the band were given, that they had that much money and then seemingly endless amount of time to record the album. I suppose they'd very much earned, earned that. 
uh, through the becoming the the biggest band in the world. Just as a as a last thing uh, before we get on to talking about one how uh, we came we first came across the albums and then obviously the cover of the album. McCartney admits that Pet Sounds had a huge influence on the session, so he was impressed by the harmonic structures and the choice of instruments that were used on Pet Sounds, Yep, which influenced the Beatles to be more far out, and they wanted to be more avant-garde on Sgt. Peppers and the Beach Boys had been. They, they wanted to go further. So, Tim, um, how, did, how did you first come across Sgt. Peppers? Not dissimilar to, to last week, actually, although, sadly, I've never seen the Beatles live. My mum was a huge Beatles fan, and she she did see them live, actually. So Sgt. Peppers isn't her favourite Beatles album. That's Rubber Soul. But for as long as I can remember, I have been aware of Sgt. Peppers' Lonely Hearts Club Band. I used to borrow my mum's vinyl copy and listen to it in my room. Yes, yeah, so yeah, in my room, I had a record player. So much so that my mum bought me a cassette of Sergeant, so even before CDs were a, a really popular thing, I got it on cassette when I was when I was young. For as long as I've been listening to music, I've been listening to Sergeant Peppers. I have a very long history with this album, and I'm guessing that, considering where your family's from, your story will be somewhat similar to mine. Yeah, I have grown up with Sergeant Peppers. Funnily enough, my mum and dad's favourite Beatles album is Rubber Soul, but Sergeant Pepper, I've known since I was a kid. Like there was a vinyl version that that's still in my mum and dad's house that was there when I was a kid. The the two albums that I would take out of their collection just just to look at the covers and everything were Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds because it scared me a little bit, but I quite liked the pictures. And there was Sergeant Pepper's because I really liked I liked the cover and then I liked the gatefold inside and felt really reassured by looking at at the band in their uniforms. One of my favourite films to watch when I was a kid was Yellow Submarine, and there's all kinds of... Obviously, there's songs that are from this album that are on there, and the Beatles have been a huge part of my life from day day zero. Yeah, this is an album that I know in and out. Like, whenever whenever I've come across anyone called Rita... My brain automatically goes meter made. Like it just, I can't help it. It just, it's programmed now. Uh, do you know what? That's lovely. Let's just end the show there. That's a, th- those are some lovely stories that we both tell there. Let's just finish it. <laughs> so I have, I have referenced the cover there. So, I mean, we can't, we can't really get, get past it. It is one of the most iconic and famous album covers in history designed by Peter Blake and Jan Howarth. It cost at the time for the cover of the album. So considering how much the recording sessions cost, Cost equivalent of 55 grand just for the design of the <laughs> album. Like, that's ridiculous amounts of money when usually cover arts would cost about a grand, like in today's prices. So, you're talking a, a phenomenal amount of money that's gone into this. It's, a, it's obviously a really famous collage of, of figures. Some of the ones I picked out, so you, you can look on Google for all of them. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, the figures include Karl Marx. Alistair Crowley, the spiritualist, Dylan Thomas, George Bernard Shaw, and Albert Stubbins, the uh, former Liverpool striker. Which harks back to a time when footballers were called things like Albert Stubbins. <laughs> My granddad's favourite player, by the oh, way. Oh, fair play. Uh, so I've got Bob Dylan, 
Marlon Brando, Marlena Dietrich, Marilyn Monroe, Laurel and Hardy, Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, H.G. Wells, and Oscar Wilde. Can I just, sorry, can I just interject there? Does that not say so much about our respective characters that you were taught, you were bringing up H.G. Wells, uh, Albert Einstein. I bring up Marx, Alistair Crowley, Dylan Thomas, George Bernard Shaw. (laughs) So you said, is it one of the most iconic album covers of all time? I, uh, I mean, I'm going to challenge you now to name me a more iconic album cover. Well, there isn't. Maybe Dark Side of the Moon is the only one that comes close, but I'd say there isn't. I'd, I'd say if I was picking three album covers that were instantly recognisable, Sgt. Pepper, Dark Side of the Moon, Unknown Pleasures. I'd put Led Zeppelin one above Unknown Pleasures, but I, I think they're both very recognisable. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Now, are you aware of the people who aren't included and who certain members of the band wanted to have included on the cover? I am aware of one or two, but um, please, for the listeners' uh, benefit. Okay, so John Lennon wanting to include Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler. George Harrison wanting to include Gandhi. Perhaps unsurprisingly... Here, my wanted to shy away from the potentially controversial associations with some of those figures. Although I would say that only one of those three people is really controversial. I'm I'm very much referring to Hitler there. I suppose it depends on the depiction that you chose of of Jesus, and if EMI, given that like it was likely to be filled with white men of the imperialist period that they weren't necessarily going to have the most positive view of Mahatma Gandhi and would probably consider him controversial. Fair enough. Okay. Um, my, my last comments on the album cover, uh, there are grammatical errors abound on the drum skin. <laughs> so for some reason there is a semicolon after Sergeant and there is no apostrophe in Pepper's. It does not belong to Sergeant Pepper. No, exactly. The band belongs to Sergeant Pepper. They are not all Peppers. No, bad grammar. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as I said, this is to me the most iconic album cover. So comparing the two covers of the two albums we've been through, there's no contest here again. This is hands down the winner. No, there, there really isn't. I mean, what I can also add, the inner gatefold is obviously a photo of the band in Sgt. Pepper garb. They're very friendly in that photograph, and it, it was deliberately designed. That was in order to reassure the listener. What I also want to say as well is that on the back cover, the, the lyrics were printed, and it's the first time that that had happened on a pop LP. And just in terms of, of launching the album as well, one of the things that is well known and very established as, as a sort of way you promote your album is you have a launch party that you invite loads of journalists to. This is the first time that's done. Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, um, invites journalists round to his house to listen to the album. And that's a that's an entirely new initiative. It's also played almost entirely on the Kenny Everett show the next day after the launch party. Again, like this this new concept of like they're absolutely breaking boundaries, not only in terms of the cover in terms of the recording, but the marketing as well. Like loads of the things that are standardized 
come about because of Sgt. Pepper. It's groundbreaking in so many ways. That's why it's such an important album. So I just want to call back to a previous clash when you talked about it being played on the Kerry Everett show in full. You go back back to what our second ever clash when we were talking through Be Here Now, and you mentioned that they'd given a load of the tracks to uh, Steve Lamack on the evening session to play, and then they'd pulled them because he'd not talked over them as much and he'd given too much of the album away. I mean, yeah, just stick it on the radio. Go play the whole thing. And, okay, people weren't able to uh, record from the radio in the same way as they are now, but the paranoia that developed around uh, piracy of music through the 80s and 90s just didn't exist back then. And um, I, I just it, 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 it's quite stark to me that something we've talked about before, this is the complete anathema to that. It also speaks to the confidence that you have such belief in what you're selling is that you'll play it to everyone for free and you know that people are going to go out and buy this because you're the Beatles. Indeed. Okay, that's probably the longest we've talked about artwork and background on any album, and understandably so. Yeah, quite quite rightly. But yes, it is time to actually get into the, the album. So we start with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. And the thing is about this, about this song is that you know it so well, but when you actually properly listen to it, it's such a musically complex song. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on. I mean, just the, the sheer ambition from the first song. I'm, I mean, and like, I'm not doing down Pet Sounds because Pet Sounds starts off with a fucking ambitious first song. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, fuck me. Like, we talk about statements. And can we, can we also recognise that not a long time previous to this, this is the band that's doing Love Me Do. And don't get me wrong, I really like Love Me Do. It's a, it's a great pop song. But musically, it's very simple. To go from that to that opening, fucking hell, the musical development that's happened in that time. My God. I agree with you, but I think you're being unkind to the album we went through last week because you came out quite rightly on a couple of occasions last week and said, just think about traditional Beach Boys fans. And okay, the Beatles had warmed people up to this because you've got Rubber Soul and then Revolver. So this isn't as jarring a change as uh, Pet Sounds had been from Beach Boys Party. But I think you're being somewhat disingenuous by drawing the comparison to Love Me Do. But I understand where you're coming from. To me. Yeah, the musical complexity, the French horns, the introduction with the classical orchestra warming up. Despite all that, it's the rhythm section. And I'm going to say this a lot as we go through this album. This album is the album of Ringo Starr's drumming and Paul McCartney's bass playing because, Christ, we've talked about tight rhythm sections. Again, right back to when we're going through the Stone Roses, this is the template for a tight rhythm section. Wow. Yeah, if the if the White Album is the guitarist's album for the Beatles, this is very much the rhythm section album. The McCartney's bass is so high in the mix and Ringo Ringo's drumming and you can have your you can have your opinions on on how good or bad it is, but 
what what you can always say is that it's always in the right place. And that sounds like I'm damning it with faint mm-hmm. praise, but I don't I don't think it is. Like it's never unnecessary. It's but it does exactly what it needs to do. And more, actually. I agree with you entirely. And I've spoken about Ringo's drumming when we went through All Things Must Pass. I'm going to come back to it uh, later on to the, uh, as we go through this album. I agree with you entirely. Uh, so, interestingly, the lead guitar part on this track is not played by George Harrison. It is played by Paul McCartney. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little about a little bit about McCartney as well as the because of his wing stuff, the frog chorus, and other things that McCartney is unfairly maligned. In fact, Lennon gets because he he marries an artist. He gets the the kudos of being the avant-garde one when McCartney is the one who's driving this project. McCartney's the one who mm-hmm. who is trying to advance the sonic boundaries of what they're attempting. He he is unfairly positioned as the conservative one because of his writing style. I agree. I, and I have little else to say. Um there are two cover versions of this song that I would like to refer to, both live cover versions. It was played in the somewhat iconic set at the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival by Jimi Hendrix, a fucking phenomenal live cover of this song. I mean, it's Hendrix playing Sgt. Peppers, so there you go. Not bad. <laughs> uh, it was also covered by U2 with Paul McCartney, at Live 8 in 2005. Dreadful. <laughs> Just bad. In every way, bad. I mean, I watched Live 8 and I have no recollection of that. So I think that, that's all we need to know. Okay, so then we move on to, um, with a little help from my friends. So a little little factoid, if you like. Um, the Screaming fans um, at the start uh, from the Beatles gig at the Hollywood Bowl. It's a Ringo-led song, and usually a Ringo-led song is the one that makes your heart sink a little bit. To be fair, this one is one of the Ringo songs I actually like. I I do I do like um do like this song. Maybe you prefer the Joe Cocker version um from the Wonder Years. I don't know, but I'm I'm okay. I like this version. <sighs> okay, so I'm gonna first. You just said Joe Cocker, so I'm gonna, that's the first thing I'm going to say. This is, so this song is quite unique in that it has reached number one in the UK, at least, under three different artists, none of which is the original recording artist. So Joe Cocker, as Kev said, in 1968. Wet, Wet, Wet had a version of it in 1988. And in 2004, Sam and Mark released a version which also went to number one. Now, so I'm not familiar with Sam and Mark or their cover version of Little Heart for My Friends. I am familiar with the other two cover versions and I detest them both. And that probably prejudices my view of this song. So you said it's a Ringo song that doesn't annoy you. I can't agree. Ringo star can't sing. So this song was was written with a deliberately simple melody to help Ringo it, it, it can't sing. It's no, I don't like it. Sorry. Where you've come from with the opening track to this, nah, don't like it. Sorry. Okay, fair enough. Don't worry, because we because we are going back very much up to a peak on the next song. Oh yes, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. 
So John Lennon insists that the song was inspired by a picture by his four-year-old, well, at the time, his four-year-old child, Julian, not LSD, although um, it's also said that a hallucinatory uh, chapter from Through the Looking Glass um, inspired the song's atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter how many times you hear this song, everything about it, it's there is nothing else like Lucy in the Sky. I feel jealous of the people who who heard it when it first came out. Like obviously when we first heard it, we were we were kids and stuff like that. And we've grown up with this being a legendary song. Like imagine hearing that for the first time and going, what the fuck yep. is that? Yeah. Like that is unbelievable. Like what what is going on in your mind? Exactly. If Pet Sounds didn't inspire psychedelic rock, then this song definitely did. It's glorious. The dreaminess of the verses with that organ part just throughout and the the, the first appearance of the, um, the tambourine from, from George Harrison. Oh, God. Oh, wow. It's dreamy versus euphoric anthemic chorus. It's a wonderful piece of music phenomenal artistry i mean like so what are we talking like this is this song's nearly what 50 years old it's over 50 years old so it's 54 it's over half a century ago and it's still a genuinely odd sounding song if you if you stop the album here then you just go fucking hell like wow i mean exactly wow it's so it's so hard to do, like even talk about it because it's just an unbelievable, unbelievable piece of work. It's amazing. It is amazing. Um, so I'm going to go back to what you said about the subject matter. So the the story about the pastel drawing by Julian Lennon. Ringo Starr claims to have seen this drawing and witnessed that conversation between father and son. Paul McCartney on the Lewis Carroll connection in an interview in 1968 said that we did the whole thing like an Alice in Wonderland idea being in a boat on a river. This Lucy was God, the big figure, the white rabbit, Um, Lucy sky diamonds. To me, it's too obvious to not be an actual reference. But what I will say is that other songs, even other songs on this album that, are clearly influenced and reference uh, drug taking. They've always been very open about admitting that. Well, the opening song. So, well, yeah, <laughs> they've always been very open about admitting when songs have been about drugs. So, and well, and the, the song we thought I get high with a little help from my friends. Exactly. So maybe, maybe they're telling the truth, but I don't believe them. No, I'm not having it. So we've not really talked about it in a, a great deal. So Lennon had had tried LSD um, and introduced uh, McCartney to it. McCartney's very clear that, uh, as as is Lennon, that it had a distinct influence on this album. That it is an it is an LSD album. You you know like it's it's all over it's all over this album. So much so that the last song was banned by the BBC because they thought it was encouraging people to get off their tits. Yeah, indeed. The drug references are all over this album, even on the next song we're, we're going to come to. <laughs> Shall we go on to getting better? 
Yeah, so it's getting better. What you what you got to say? Like again, as as we talked about earlier, that this is the band in harmony. Probably the last time that they're in harmony, and I love the the interplay uh, between Lennon and McCartney. So it's getting better all the time. It couldn't get much worse. I I love that. That's it's such a, it's such a lovely interplay in in terms of lyrics and sounds and everything like that. Unfortunately, like very much this album, well, this song makes reference to Lennon's history of, well, and we could, we're not we're not going to skip around it. John Lennon has an awful history in terms of how he treated women. He was domestically abusive. Like let's let's get that out straight away. Exactly. Within the, the song, there's some very graphic references, as you said, to John Lennon's history of, of domestic violence. You know, the, the final verse of the song, he says, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Man, I was mean, but I'm changing my scene and I'm doing the best that I can. So in the last interview that John Lennon gave before he was murdered in 1980 with Playboy magazine, perhaps not the best publication to talk about your history of uh, disrespecting women, but, you know, maybe it's just me. (laughs) What he said is, all that was me. I used to be cruel to my woman and physically any woman. I was a hitter. I couldn't express myself and I hit, but I sincerely believe in love and peace. Eh. I'm a violent man who has learned not to be violent and regrets his violence. So as we said, well, we we talked about this a few weeks ago when we did uh, Trey and Compton and, and Dr. Dre. The, the simple act of contrition does not excuse the acts that were carried out. I don't want to dwell on this too much. It's something we have to acknowledge. It's... <sighs> Yeah, I'm not sure what I think about putting it into a song which is so lighthearted in its tone, to me at least. I, I don't know. No, I, 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 do, I do understand the point that you're making. Unfortunately, John Lennon, despite, despite what he says in Getting Better, um, he didn't get better in terms of his treatment towards women until much later in his life. And I, I've read... Uh, Philip Norman's biography of uh, John Lennon and he's awful towards women through for a long period in his life and we shouldn't excuse that he is he is a domestic abuser and that's something that's been kind of airbrushed from history really because of who he is and people like his music we we should be honest and say that he was horrific towards towards women and the that has to be considered as part of his legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I want to bring us back to It's Getting Better. I think it's a really catchy song. I like it. I think, again, the bass line's really good. There is some lovely guitar playing by George Harrison, actually. Just understated, Mm -hmm. wandering alone. I like like this. We've, We've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole in terms of John Lennon. But just taking the song musically, I do like it. It's fun. Yes, we have we have gone down a rabbit hole, but like to be fair, that Lennon leads us down that. But in terms of the song, it's it's a good song. I like I like it. So we we go on to uh, fixing a hole, which it's very McCartney. Not that's not a criticism, <laughs> but it is really Paul McCartney. It's beautifully performed. Uh, George Harrison's guitar is excellent. 
it's really catchy again. So days after after my first re-listen to the album for, for this clash, I had getting better and fixing a hole stuck in my head. Like they are they are really catchy pop songs. They are really catchy pop songs. I agree entirely with you there. There's a couple of things I want to say musically, and I, and, and then I want to have a little conversation about what the song's about. So uh, musically, there is very strong use of a harpsichord in this. We talked about that when we went through Pet Sounds. So there's a real link there to me about, oh, harpsichord. I'll use some of that. There you go. There is a guitar solo in this from George Harrison, which to me... Mick Ronson was listening to this guitar solo. That's all I'm going to say. Fuck yeah, he was. <laughs> <laughs> like, obviously, as you know, my my love of Bowie, it's not a surprise that that's one of the first things that I picked out was going, I really like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, Paul McCartney, initially, he said that this song was, well, I'll read his quote from 1967 when the album first came out. It's really about the fans who hang around your door day and night. See the people standing there. They worry me and never win. I wonder why they don't get in my door. So those are the lyrics in the song. If only they learn the best way to get in is not to do that. They simply stand there and give off the impression. Don't let us in. So that's McCartney saying. He's saying it's about people that are stalkers, basically. So you think, okay, you can hear that. But it's not about that, though, is it, Paul? Do you know what this song's about, Kev? No idea. <laughs> it's about drugs. Is it? <laughs> well, who am I to judge? Let me read the quote of the songwriter himself, one Paul McCartney, who said, much later, he said, it is an ode to pot. Mending was my meaning, wanting to be free and let my mind wander, to let myself be artistic. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a song about drugs, and it, as it was perceived to be at the time. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, um, so we move on to She's Leaving Home. The song itself was inspired by a Daily Mail article about teenage runaways. And the the song, it's it's beautifully structured, again. The backing vocals by John Lennon, where he sort of is acting as the voice of the parents is it's really haunting and the orchestration is is really simple but it's beautifully done it's so well done this song and it's akin to the 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 kitchen sink narrative that that's going on at this time so i mean i think it's maybe a couple of years later you got kathy come home and and that kind of thing and this, this song really plays into that kind of idea and concept yeah, you, you, you talked about the, the call and response vocals within the chorus, if you call it a chorus. And that's exactly what I've said. They complement each other perfectly. It's such a poignant song. To start a pop song with a harp is a bold choice. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I It's a lovely song. It's absolutely gorgeous, really. So we go on to... Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. So the genesis of this of this song is, is interesting. So John Lennon adapted the lyrics and the concept from an 1843 poster for Pablo Fank's Circus, which he bought from an antique shop whilst they were on location for the promo video for Strawberry Fields. Um, and the whole thing develops from that. 
I really want to give credit to George Martin here, his production work on it, because the way he develops a sound collage to evoke a circus, it really does. It's one of the few songs on on the actual album that does really properly link with that Edwardian theme from the title song, the, the actual concept for the album. This really feels as though it keeps to the concept, which frankly, for for some of the some of the songs previously, we're not really sticking yeah, to that absolutely. to that idea really. But this does. This really, really works well. It does. And uh, as you said, there is so much of George Martin's stamp on this. The collage of organ sounds, of fairground sounds, makes the song. There is one person who would disagree with our praise of the song, and that is the person who wrote it. It's John Lennon. So he said, I wasn't proud of that. There was no real work. I was just going through the motions because we needed a new song. And that speaks to what I mentioned earlier about the personal traumas that John Lennon was going through at the time and the sense of disengagement he felt with the recording of this album. But yeah, I agree. This is a George Martin song, if there is such a thing. There are more suggestions that this had references to illicit drugs. So the BBC erroneously thought that the reference to Henry the Horse was a reference to heroin. But John Lennon and Paul McCartney were adamant that everything lyrically came from what was on the poster. So, you know, who are we to disagree? Yeah, I like this song. It's got a carnival sound all the way through it. And um, yeah, good stuff for me. Yeah, I don't disagree with anything that you said there. Um, So I'm going to move on. So... We then move on to the Harrison written uh, Within You, Without You. And this is the start of the second of the other side of the album. And it comes at you from fucking nowhere because you're not expecting a very traditional Indian sound to come into this album. There's, there's been no sort of real precursor to it. There's, there's maybe like a Tamler knocking about earlier on, but really like this... This is coming at you absolutely from nowhere. And it's it's just beautiful. It's been described as the ethical the ethical soul of the album due to its uh, rejection of uh, Western materialism within the within the lyrical content. And I mean I'm all I've always liked the Harrison song on on Beatles albums. I've all I mean, as we know from from the first clash, I am a Harrison fan. So yeah, bang into this. I've always been fascinated by Indian music. We talked when we went through All Things Must Pass about it was Harrison's celebration of his spiritual enlightenment. This is his spiritual awakening to me. You mentioned George Harrison when the Beatles had given up touring, went to India. He toured around India with Ravi Shankar. Ravi Shankar had taught George Harrison how to play instruments like the sitar. I love this song. The melodies, the rhythms, the instruments. Again, you said this earlier on, but imagine being in 1967 in suburban England when you've bought a Beatles album and you're familiar with Love Me Do, with I Saw Her Standing There, you know, you listen to Sergeant Peppers and you're disarmed by what you've heard on side one. And then you stick side two on and you think, Jesus Christ, what is this? 
Ah, this is exciting to me. Love it. It's glorious. It, I mean, it is. It's it's beautiful. It's so well done. It's as I have said, I am biased. I I'm not going to lie about it, but I always look forward to the Harrison song on the album, however many there were. And this this is brilliant. It's just brilliant. Yep. So let's let's move on to when I'm 64. So this has has been described for a song for the parents of the time to maybe not have them as terrified by what their what their kids are listening to because this this is uh, very much borrowing from the musical tradition and the song interestingly is very speeding to raise the pitch of McCartney's voice again like just trying new new things so to make him sound younger and th- like if you are a british kid you can't have not come across this like i don't, I don't I'd like so for those not familiar for a long time there was a a show on the bbc called points of view which was it was hosted initially by anne robinson she of the weakest link fame and it was an outlet for angry uh opinionated malcontents very English malcontents to air their grievances. Now, I have a theory here. Let's say British society is somewhat fractured at the moment. And I don't know the exact timescales, but points of view, I believe, was taken off the air around about 2016. So I have a theory. (laughs) (laughs) My theory is that as soon as you took away the gammon's outlet to vent their misplaced prejudice and rage. <laughs> what were we left with? All of a sudden, Brexit happened. I don't know. It seems logical to me. <laughs> so without the uh, release valve of point of view, it led to Brexit. And so much worse that has happened since then. <laughs> Listen, that's my theory. I may be completely wrong, but um, yeah. Point of view was the gammon, as Kev said, release valve. And the theme tune, Two Points of View, for many years was an instrumental version of When I'm 64. Now, apparently this is one of the first songs that Paul McCartney ever wrote, and it was, in fact, included on set lists during the Beatles' residency in Hamburg in their very early days. Um, I don't care. I hate it. Sorry. (laughs) I fucking hate this song. Never liked it. Never will. Awful. Okay. Uh, I don't dislike it. Maybe it's that I have warmer feelings to it because I didn't watch Points of View as much as you. I mean, I do have a pathological dislike of Anne Robinson. Yeah, but that's with good reason. <laughs> and maybe that's why I hate this song. So um, let's let's go on to the next song, which is uh, "Lovely Rita Meter Maid," as as discussed earlier. I mean, how can you dislike any kind of song that um, that includes the use of a comb and paper kazoo's? You can't, you can't dislike that. Uh, no, you can't. I, I love this song. It's really good. So I've always had a soft spot for the song. It also has a bit of a freak out at the end, which I'm, I'm bang into. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, so, um, I just want to say this. This is one of the tracks on the album, which is, well, according to engineer Jeff Emmerich, was arranged to, let's say, pay tribute to Pet Sounds. In particular, the backing vocals and the harmonies. And this is another track where Paul McCartney's vocals were recorded at a lower tape speed 
so they could then speed them up and he would sound sound like a younger man. Yeah, this this grabs me right from the start. I really like it. I, I mean, I, I've, I've got nothing to add more. Like, I've already said that I really like this song anyway. Uh, so then we, we move on from that to Good Morning, Good Morning. Uh, so John Lennon was inspired to write it after seeing an ad for Cornflakes. And I do really like how the song grows and develops, really. It seems quite flimsy and throwaway initially, and then it becomes it becomes something there's more substance to it than than initially that you actually feel. Yeah, again, you you've pretty much said what I've said. In terms of what it's about, it's about the boredom and the grind of suburban life. It's written by John Lennon, this song. Paul McCartney suggested that it was somewhat autobiographical. So he says. John was feeling trapped in suburbia and was going through some problems with Cynthia, which we referred to earlier. It was about his boring life at the time. And there's a line in it, it's time for tea and meet the wife, which refers to the BBC sitcom uh, Meet the Wife, uh, which starred Thora Heard of Last the Summer Wine fame. It, not the first... Um... Album class reference for um, Last of the Summer Wine. Uh, no, indeed, uh, but no bathtubs this time or hillsides. The animal noises that appear at the end of this song uh, are another inspiration from Pet Sounds because of the animal noises at the end of Caroline. No, uh, although no train this time. So clearly, Paul McCartney, like us, thought, the fuck's that about? And he decided not to bother. Yeah, I, I, I quite like it. It starts quite jarringly, but it develops into something that I uh, I like a lot more than I thought I would, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, because that's the exact um, sort of response I had to it, is that initially it really hits you quite hard and you're not quite sure what's going on, but it develops into something much more transgressive and much more um, different than, than you, th- you think it's going to be. The next song on the album is uh, the reprise of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And there's not really a huge amount to say about this, apart from it's designed to really seg into the finale of the album. Do you have anything more to say on it, really? All I'm going to... It's just a question. Is it okay that I prefer this to the opener? Because I do, and I always have. I, I understand why you say that, because it's a much more... It's a rockier version of it. It's it's a harder version. I actually, yeah, I do, I, I do actually really really like it as a mm-hmm. as a sort of segue, and I could actually do with more of it if if I'm if I'm truly honest. Yep. But I, I mean, in terms of like just a filler for the album, it's great. It's great. It's really good. Yeah. I like it a lot. It's 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 good stuff. Okay, so we lead into the final song of the album and boy when we were talking about pet sounds and caroline no being a low-key melancholic end to the album that very much influences how that album's viewed this is very much a hugely important massively different piece of work that defines how this album's viewed because essentially it doesn't matter what's happened in the previous 30 or well, five minutes before. Also, bear note, Noel Gallagher, yet again, 35 minutes they fucking <laughs> achieved this. Kev, okay, even I'm going to say, let it go, let it go. 
It's a long time ago now. Let it go. No, I refuse to let it go. He needs to fucking know that that album was not acceptable. <laughs> like, you can achieve so much more in so much shorter time and not have a fucking that number of overdubs. Anyway, I digress somewhat. I mean, this... Like this, this does define why why this album regularly comes up near the top of lists or has done previously, because a day in the life is one of the most important and amazing compositions, and I think it's it's right to call it a composition as well that has has been made in modern popular music. I mean, so the you take the first element of it. So Lennon drawing inspiration from two. Yeah, again, the Daily Mail is playing a fucking huge part in, <laughs> like, of all the fucking newspapers, the one that said "Hurrah for the Black Shirts" being referenced in one of the most transgressive and important albums in history. It fucking disturbs me. But we'll fucking rather me. But we'll we'll move on from that. Yeah, so draws inspiration from two Daily Mail articles about one about loads of potholes in Blackburn and the death of the Beatles' friend and Guinness heir Tara Brown. So that's the first sort of, for want of a better phrase, stanza of of the song. Then it's knitted together with a kind of orchestral segue that's inspired by Stockhausen and Cage that links these two sort of very distinct songs together. And then the very McCartney-esque being within a life. Um, So we get up, get out of bed, drags a comb across my head. I mean, brilliantly, brilliantly written and the, the pace to it as well. And like the... The, the the sound soundscapes around um your toast and everything like that uh, i mean it, it evokes it so well it does it does so so paul mccartney of that middle section he said that it was just me remembering what it was like to run up the road and catch a bus to school having a smoke and going into class it was a reflection of my school days i would have a woodbine and somebody would speak and I would go into a dream. I mean, no idea what was in those woodbines, Paul, but um, anyway. <laughs> um, were, were they the ones that Stanley Stanley Matthews were, was um, was advocating? <laughs> I think not. So we mentioned this earlier in terms of the BBC and their, let's say, conservatism at the time. Uh, the lyric, I'd love to turn you on, the BBC interpreted that as an explicit reference to drug taking. Um, so they banned it. They banned this song. A BBC spokesperson in 1967 said, we have listened to this song over and over again, and we have decided that it appears to go just a little too far and could encourage a permissive attitude to drug taking. Okay, fair enough. Um, what What is there to say about Day in the Life that hasn't, already been said I, I don't know it's the epic album closer is very much expected nowadays this creates it this is this is it this is the definitive epic album closer one one uh, fact to say that the the sort of very famous final chord it's the four members of the band and george martin simultaneously playing four pianos and a harmonium. And that rings out for over 40 seconds. What they did was they just gradually turned up the gain on all the studio mics, 
so that the fade out would last for as long as possible. So much so that if you keep listening right to the end of the tone, you can hear the rustling of papers, a squeaky chair within the sh- within Abbey Road Studio. It's apparently also what inspired the, you know, the THX, the audience is listening jingle yeah. logo. Apparently the end chord from Day in the Life is what inspired that. Yeah, this is one of the greatest closing tracks of all time. That's all I'm going to say. I think when I first listened to A Day in the Life, and like listened to it properly, not as a kid, like actually properly paying attention to it and really wanting to appreciate it, that that end chord, you just go, fuck. Like that's an, that is an mm-hmm. ending. Like no fade out. Like just sustain yep. sustaining that and it absolutely blows you away and it's the best ending to an album that i think i can i can think of uh no because i've already said that tomorrow never knows is the greatest piece of music ever set to record and that closes revolver <laughs> so you are wrong okay the most dramatic ending then now yeah that's fair that's fair only other thing i want to say about day in the life Anyone who thinks Ringo Starr was a shit drummer, listen to Day in the Life and then come back and let's have a conversation because those drum fills throughout this song, sorry, you ain't doing that if you're a shit drummer. Phenomenal. Well, I mean, it, like we've all, you've you've literally just uh, referenced Tomorrow Never Knows. So if you think he's a shit drummer, then again, listen to that. Quite. The only thing I want to add to our discussion on what is, again, one of the greatest songs ever recorded, is who covered it? And do you know who has covered this? No, I do not. So I've only written one band down, and I don't think you'll, I don't think you'll get it because I've never heard, heard this cover, and, I like, after I discovered it, like, I am going to have to search it down because, fuck me, I need to hear it. <laughs> You've not told me who the fucking band is. Come on. The Fall. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I really want to hear it. <laughs> I mean, I bet that's a fucking dark cover version. <laughs> I'd love to turn you on. <laughs> Please don't do a Marky Smith impression. The world isn't ready for that. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay, shall we move on? Yeah, so I think uh, really we need to talk about legacy. And, I mean, we've kind of covered the the fact that it changed how albums were were viewed. It changed how albums were marketed. It changed how you, you started and ended an album. I mean, album craft was started arguably by Pet Sounds, but definitely... You start with a banger and you end with a banger. And if you if you're going for a concept and you try and carry that throughout, that idea was solidified by Sergeant Pepper. Uh, yeah, this is one of the most culturally significant works of art of the 20th century. It just is. I'm not going to go into a debate about it. It just is. If Pet Sounds laid the foundations for pop music, rock music, whatever you want to call it becoming a legitimate cultural art form, then Sergeant Pepper's rammed it home. 
it's hard to name an artist that hasn't been influenced by Sgt. Peppers. And I'm just going to... Okay, off the top of my head, Pink Floyd, The Who, Robert Fripp, David Bowie, Stevie Wonder, Prince, Radiohead, Marvin Gaye, Bob Dylan, Oasis, of course, Flaming Lips, Primal Scream, Blur, U2. Yes, even the Rolling Stones. That's those are off the top of my head. Any artist you could name, I'll bring it bring it into the modern era. Janelle Monet, we talked about the other week. Lizzo, we talked about the other week. Taylor Swift. I cannot think of a more culturally significant piece of art over the last hundred and whatever it is years than Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Well, I mean, like you mentioned um, the Rolling Stones. I mean, the Rolling Stones literally tried to do their own version of it with their Satanic Majesties uh, Presents and failed miserably. Like, that is an album that does not work at all. We we, we don't. So all all I'll do is I will briefly pick out some of the positive contemporary reviews because as we as we've talked about this this isn't this is an album that throughout its history has been, has received the cultural kudos that it that they clearly deserve so tom phillips in the village voice uh, just at the time described the lp as the most ambitious and most most successful record album ever issued fair <laughs> Pete Jones of Record Mirror said the album was clever and brilliant from raucous to poignant and back again. I think my favourite one within um, at the time of, of the contemporary reviews in the Times, William Mann described Sgt. Pepper as a pop music masterclass and commented that so considerable were its musical advances. The only track that would have been conceivable in pop songs five years ago was with a little help from my friends. And that, that's, that's very fair that given just the complexity of the music that that's created uh, by the Beatles within within the within the album. Uh, very much so. Um, don't worry, I'm getting to him. But what I will say is the reviews were not all positive. In fact, there was one very controversial review by Richard Goldstein in the New York Times. He said the album was like a spoiled child. It was an album of special effects, dazzling but ultimately fraudulent. And he criticised the Beatles for becoming cloistered composers. Now, that review caused an absolute shitstorm. So much so that his former employees, The Village Voice, felt compelled to republish the review that you quoted earlier by Tom Phillips. So in July of 67, Goldstein tried to defend his views of Sergeant Peppers. I mean, can you imagine getting so annoyed by the views of one particular music critic that you uh, feel the need to talk about him endlessly? <laughs> Before we get on to Nobby McGay, we do have to talk about the Goldstein review because certainly in the the last few years, it has become increasingly more influential that people have embraced far more of his view and what he was espousing about Sgt. Pepper that it wasn't this ground it wasn't this groundbreaking album that it doesn't necessarily work as a concept album that there's some good stuff on it but it's not what it purports to be or certainly what 
the hype is around it and it has it has grown in influence and i think that's obviously that's clearly reflected by the uh, rolling stone like it dropping from the best album ever recorded to 25th 24th 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 sorry yes you're right and i have some sympathy with those views sergeant peppers did not invent the concept album i don't even think pet sounds did to be honest with you but as we have said, the reason we've done this clash is because Peppers was inspired by Pet Sounds. And I think it's a great injustice to Brian Wilson that Peppers is so lauded and was so successful commercially, whereas Pet Sounds wasn't. There's a lot of truth in what Goldstein said, but there is such a thing as taking things too far. And I can't agree with all of the sentiments in his review. Uh, I think he had a point in some instances, but it just, again, it strikes me as a sort of, well, seeds corner, as you've said in the past. Oh, I I can see through this nonsense. And um, in a post-truth world, it doesn't surprise me that more people have started to look at that and go, oh, yes, of course, he's right. So, it, yeah, it it doesn't shock me that that viewpoint has has grown in popularity. Because there's always going to be. So whenever there's the Oscar-winning movie that everyone goes and watch and says, this is one of the best films, like there will be people, like not that I think Citizen Kane is the greatest film ever made, but there will be people who will who will watch it and go, that's shite. <laughs> there's always going to be contrarians. There's always going to be people who, who say that, Van Gogh was a bit of a wank painter, <laughs> you know, so that those people are always going to exist because that's the nature of art is that it's entirely subjective. There are points that Goldstein makes that are fair. Sgt. Pepper's is not a perfect album, but then again, neither is Pet Sounds. Uh, I mean, um, let's hold on to that, shall we? I'm going to come back to that. <laughs> I, we, people have been waiting with bated breath to hear what Nobby McGee has to say about Sgt. Peppers. So so he he has reviewed, he did review this album at the time as well. He has a contemporary view of this album. He was writing for Esquire at the time in 1967. He said it was a consolidation more intricate than Revolver, but not more substantial. He referred to the Goldstein review and he said that Goldstein had fallen victim to over-anticipation allowing all the fillers and reverbs and orchestral effects and overdubs to deafen him to the stuff underneath, which was pretty nice. He then, uh, when writing for The Village Voice in 1976, wrote a retrospective review in which uh, he revisited the supposedly epochal works of art from 1967. He said that Sergeant Pepper was dated in the sense that it speaks with unusually specific eloquence of a single point in history and that it was a dozen good songs and true. Perhaps they're too precisely performed, but I'm not going to complain. Oh, okay. So perhaps not as controversial as some of the things he's previously said, but I've got no fucking idea what he's on about, to be honest with you. So he's, he's saying that it, they're too good at performing? Um. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, d- I don't quite understand what he's getting at. <sighs> no, nor do I. I think he's trying to say, well, I loved it at the time, and I still do, but, uh, I, I, you know, I have an alternative opinion to the mainstream. Just fuck off. Oh, you're a dick. I, I hope never to meet you. 
the thing is, is that like I don't believe that it is evocative of of a time. So something like she's leaving home that that covers the generations that it speaks to it speaks to a a, a much greater thing than what we, than than what was going on in the 60s at the time even even something like when i'm 64 like you may not even like the song but it speaks to a thought process uh, when i'm when i get older and i'm losing my hair many years from now like that that talks to the human experience so yeah, fuck off, Robert Crisco, and your dickish trying to suit corner, trying to make it sound as though you you're with punk because you're not. So fuck off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fuck off. I love the way this started as a humorous statement, and now it's turned into a proper vendetta. Like we fucking hate this guy. I mean, I've got a per- I've got a personal dislike <laughs> of a man that I don't even know what he looks like. Oh, I do know what he looks like. He's a prick. <laughs> Come on. <sighs> Best song, worst song. Off you go. Okay. Um, I think, um, so I will start positive, which is very unlike me. It's a day in the life. It's just a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of work. There, there are so many other songs on this album that I can talk about in terms of the beauty of them, the complexity of them. But a day in the life is... There's nothing, there is nothing that's like that. It's an amazing piece of work. In terms of the worst song, it's when I'm 64. It's a bit musical and I'm never, I've never been a fan of musical. Okay, so I'll start worst song first because I agree with you. I've never liked it and I never will. When I'm 64 is the worst song on the album. And the best song for me, the obvious answer is Day in the Life, but it's also the wrong answer. Because Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is the actual best song on this album. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is a perfect song. I fucking adore that song. What it has that Day in the Life doesn't is an anthemic chorus that you can sing and sing and sing. That is not to denigrate Day in the Life. I love that song, but it ain't the best song on this album. Lucy in the Sky is boom. There you go. Essentially, we're arguing about whose emerald is more green. Um, I mean, you, you're right, we are, but mine is. It isn't. <laughs> uh, it's probably time to get to scoring these two albums. So I believe that the customary um, thing is that as, I, as it was my clash, that you go first. Could I propose we do things in reverse order? I would like, if you are in agreement, I would like us to score Sergeant Peppers first because I think we will be more closely aligned. <laughs> no, fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I- okay. Well, in that case, you do. So- you go first on Sergeant Peppers because if you, you have to have the deciding vote on the last album, so you need to go last mm-hmm. on Pet Sounds. So you go first on Peppers. Go on. Okay. Like, really thinking about it, if I take into consideration the concept, I don't think the concept, like, it actually meets the brief. It does fail as a concept album. However, I forgive it for that because there's too much quality going on for me to really give a shit that it's not a evocation of, of Edwardian England. It's got Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and it's got A Day in the Life. Um, anything that has that, 
alongside some of the other stuff that's going on, it's too good to really give a shit that it doesn't work as a concept album. It just works as a collection of really, really good songs. And generally, it absolutely hits the mark. There's a couple of ones that you like, you don't like. So I'm going to come down on this as an 8 out of 10. It's not perfect, but the the highs are so high that you can't, for me, you can't see it lower than that. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to beat around the bush here because I think you've largely largely hit the nail on the head. What can you say about Sgt. Peppers as that hasn't already been said? Musically, it's mostly great. At times, it's perfect, but there are some low points. But those low points are minor bumps in the road. I'm going to go higher than you. I'm going to go eight and a half out of ten. I agree with everything you've said. It fails in its objective or the objective that McCartney set out for it, at least. But it is still a phenomenal album. Uh, no, in fact, sorry, eight and a half. No, I'm going nine. I'm going nine out of ten. It deserves nine out of ten for for its influence. Nine out of ten. Do you know what? Do you know what? I'm also going to revise. I'm going to go up to eight and a half. Okay, so you've got an eight and a half. I've got nine. So that makes what seven. Teen and a half? I don't know. That'll do. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, so I guess I go first on Pet Sounds then. All right, so I've thought long and hard about Pet Sounds. I think it is a huge injustice that Pet Sounds doesn't have the recognition that Peppers does. It is every bit as influential as Sergeant Peppers. The simple fact is, as we've already talked about, the reason we're doing this clash is because if Pet Sounds wasn't recorded, then Sergeant Peppers wouldn't have been recorded. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Again, this is the best album we've ever reviewed, in my opinion. And as a result, it deserves the best score we've ever given it. So I'm giving it 10 out of 10. I adore Pet Sounds and it gets 10 out of 10 for me. How about you? Wow. Okay. So for me, I don't think it's perfect. So we can't get a 10. However, I do think not only does it meet the brief as a concept album better than Sgt. Pepper's, It also led to Sgt. Pepper's being recorded. And as a collection, as a bringing together of songs, it works better. It is one of the best things that we've reviewed so far. And we've reviewed some absolute fucking corkers. As I say, I don't think it's perfect. So I am coming down as a 9 out of 10. It is marginally better than Sgt. Pepper's, but a tiny, tiny amount. So I think we're we're broadly in agreement. So if I've got this right, we have gone 17 and a half for Peppers and 19 for Pet Sounds. Yeah, they're close together. They're both phenomenal albums. My 10 out of 10 is undoubtedly born out of my history of Pet Sounds, but I ain't going to apologise for it. It is a perfect album for me. Even though there is one song on it which is weaker than the others, it's still a fucking great song. So yeah, there you go. I'm really happy with that. And that, that's fair enough. Like as, as we as we've said, they are both two really brilliant, iconic, important, legendary albums. One ha- well, we didn't we didn't shit out out of it. There wasn't a draw. I think a lot of people would have expected that we would have come down on them, the Beatles side, but. Nah, Soz, because it's not even the best Beatles album. Which is Revolver. Can we just agree on that, at least? Yeah. (laughs) Sound. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Right. 
So, should I reveal what we're going to be going through in our next clash? I think you should. So, as we said earlier, our theme is beef. Our theme is rivalries. Now, you weren't big. You weren't big here. I wasn't messing about. You were not messing about. So, how would you go from arguably the, the two most influential albums of all time? Where would you go from there? Especially with this theme of rivalries. I don't know. Um how about we start with the biggest selling album of all time? Yes, Kevin, we are going to go through Thriller. And that is going up against Purple Rain. Wow. The King of Pop versus the Purple One. Now, in terms of rivalries, there's a lot to get into because they did no get on. <laughs> I mean, what what kind of grade of beef are we talking? Uh, if there was a nine, it would be a nine. But it is definitely grade eight. Grade A beef. Prime cuts. <laughs> uh, yep, we are going to do Thriller against Purple Rain. That's it, basically. There we go. Now, Montezay, absolute bangers. So there you go. That's your homework. Go and listen to those two albums, and uh, we'll see you back here next week where we'll be taking you through Michael Jackson's Thriller. So, before we go, Kev, as always, what have you to encourage people to keep in touch with the show this week? So, if you are um, so inclined and you enjoy uh, finding out the latest on the Free Britney campaign, then you may be on Twitter (laughs) and you can check out our um, offerings at Clash Album. Um, If you like quality content that is uh, well-made, it's Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school and you want to send an electronic mail, please send us um, an email albumclash at gmail.com or sign us up for some kind of uh, weird... uh, mailing list honestly like just just the admin of of what you send us to to have a look at will be interesting enough exactly gives us something to do (laughs) so going back to your insta stuff effectively this podcast is a promotional tool for our instagram account (laughs) because our instagram posts get more likes and more followers than the podcast gets listeners. So, (laughs) yeah. Our Instagram is good. Our podding is bad. (laughs) Uh, uh, Anyway, to those of you who are still listening, it means the world to us, honestly. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. We We do appreciate it. We massively do. And so, yeah, the next clash in our beef season is... Michael Jackson's Thriller against Prince's Purple Rain. So go and listen to those two. We'll see you back here. Same back time, same back channel next week. I've been Tim. I've been the purple one. <laughs> you fucking wish you'd been the purple one. <laughs> yeah, I really do. All right. Take care now. Take care. Ta-ra. Ta-ra. Bye.